0: Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore this evening as we welcome, as of this week, New York Times best-selling author, Beck Dory Stein to Harrisburg.
1: Yeah. Thank you for coming. Saturday night. Woo.
0: She's joined on stage by WITF's very own Capitol Bureau Chief, Katie Meyer. Now tonight's event would not have been possible without the help of our partner, WITF. Not only were they gracious enough to send their very own capital reporter, Katie Meyer, to moderate the discussion, but from the corner of the oval has been selected as July's WITF and Midtown Scholar Pick of the Month. WITF is here in person tonight over at the front of the store here. That's Debbie, Debbie wave, yeah. Yeah, Um,
1: Debbie and Grace.
0: (laughs) Uh, please say hi, talk to them about all the educational opportunities they're providing throughout the region and how you can get involved. Now onto the main event. Katie Meyer is WITF's Capital Bureau Chief and she covers all things state politics for public radio stations throughout Pennsylvania. Katie came to Harrisburg by way of New York City where she worked at Fordham University's public radio station as an anchor and general assignment reporter. Huge thanks to Katie for joining us today. This was kind of a last minute thing we put together. So no big props to her for coming through in the clutch. Uh, Now, Bekdory Stein is a native of Narberth, Pennsylvania. Prior to her five years in the White House, she taught high school English in Jersey, Washington, D.C., and South Korea. Now a New York Times best-selling author, she has recently appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and from the corner of the Oval has received glowing reviews from the New York Times, The Guardian, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, and many other media outlets. Not only that, but it has already been optioned for film by Universal Pictures. So it's been a big year. Um, some praise, New York Times calls From the Corner of the Oval addictively readable and says it's, quote, equal parts C-SPAN and sex in the city, which I think is the quote of the year. <laughs> uh, Entertainment Weekly writes that the book is a glimpse at what life was really like working for the most historical of administrations. Hilarious, self-deprecating, and refreshingly honest From the Corner of the Oval is the must-read memoir of the year. We're so pleased to welcome Bektori Stein to Harrisburg in the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, so please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Katie and Beck.
2: All right guys, thank you so much for coming out. Um, so we will just start off, I wanna get uh, really just like the basics of your job. So you, um, you were a teacher before you were the White House stenographer. Uh, <laughs> so
1: how did you get the job and why? Why did you take the job? So I had never heard of stenographers before i thought they went extinct in the 1950s but when i moved to washington dc i went there i had a part-time job at one school then i had a substitute teaching job at another school then i was tutoring kids at their homes and then picked up another job at a coffee shop because it's all about the hustle when you're 25 and finally had my fifth job at lululemon where I was really hoping to be a manager in like six months time. And that was the goals, those were the goals. And then I applied to be a stenographer at a law firm. I was thinking maybe someday I'd wanna be a lawyer, I'd go to law school. First I wanted to get a taste of it by going to a law firm. And so I applied to be the stenographer on Craigslist, then decided, you know what, I'm kind of overbooked, blew off the interview because my shift at Lululemon ran late. And this woman actually responded from Craigslist and said, I know you're really busy, but this is actually a job at the White House, and you'd be traveling with the president. And my thought was, president of what? What are you talking about? (laughs) So I get this job. Within a month, I'm at the White House. Within three months, I'm traveling on Air Force One. It's like whirlwind breakneck insanity. And it's very exciting, but also I'm just making mistakes at every turn. I'm wearing the wrong thing. I'm saying the wrong thing. And it's an exciting time, but a crazy time. And I took the job because how can you not take that job? It's even better than a really good toaster I once found on Craigslist. It's the best thing you can get on Craigslist is a job at the White House.
2: (laughs) And you can get some really interesting stuff on Craigslist. Um, So had you been political before, like before you ended up in the middle of politics? No.
1: And what's funny is that, I mean, I had my set of values, but I wasn't politically active and my boyfriend at the time was actually extremely active. He had done all these political campaigns and so that caused absolutely no tension in the relationship <laughs> that I went from being a school teacher to like, bye honey, I'll be home after I get back from my job at the White House. <laughs> and I was like, cool.
2: And so you became a stenographer. You had to figure out what a stenographer did, I'm assuming. Um, you were one of five, I believe. Yes. And so what what do they do? What did you do when you were there?
1: So when we think of stenographers, we think of beehive hairdo, cat-eye glasses, also courtroom stenographers are so talented. They work on a little machine. They can type in real time. They know shorthand. I know none of these things, which made for a very awkward interaction when one of our volunteer motorcade drivers was actually in stenography school. And he's like, you're the stenographer. I'm hoping to do what you do one day. And I was like, oh, no, you're so overqualified. I don't (laughs) know how to do any of that. Um, So a White House stenographer, it's much more about discretion. And so what they liked about me, I found out later, was that I was a high school English teacher, I had this background um, working at Sidwell Friends, which is where the Obama girls currently attended, so they were like, well, you're not gonna do anything too crazy in front of them, or in front of the president, if you've already been around the Obama girls. And so our job was basically to walk into the Oval whenever the press was in there, set down two recorders, and then find our seat on the opposite side of the room, and just get to listen. Mm -hmm. That's the coolest part, is that oftentimes I'd find myself against a wall in the Oval Office being like, I'm just getting paid to listen to David Remnick interview Barack Obama right now, this is insane. And we got to go wherever he went. So I went to 45 countries with him, almost every state. And so much of the time I was just sort of like in the corner trying to disappear, but also trying to make sure I got really good audio. And so I felt like I was just his professional stalker, where it was just like, I'm here, and they know it, but they don't wanna pay any attention, that's great. So yeah.
2: And I think you had a line, or you had said at some point that uh, the stenographers are sort of the first line of defense for the president to back up what he's said, or to figure out what he's said. Is it? Uh, what's the relationship? Because you're like you're listening in, and you're like watching the press all the time. Is there like a funny relationship with the stenographers or the press, or is it really just kind of you stay separate?
1: Oh no, you're together all the time. You sort of become like petulant siblings. So <laughs> my assigned seat in the motorcade was there's a press one van. And that's all the press. And my assigned seat was actually sitting shotgun. So that right there causes some tension. Right. Because they would be like, oh, why does Beck get to sit in the <laughs> front every time? And every once in a while, you'd have a reporter being like, I'm car sick. Let me sit up front. It's like, no, you just want to get in before me. And I have to get in first. Uh-huh. Um, but no, they, I mean, the press was wonderful. And yeah, I think the press has a, ten- a contentious relationship with the Uh, executive office which is normal and great but for me it was just sort of like we're all in there together just trying to like give each other snacks on the road when everyone's really hungry
2: (laughs) (laughs) and so then so you're getting everything you're trying to so you pretty much like you have like probably in your head a sort of a record of you know all the time that you were there following the president around. wait first off when did you get the job 2012. 2012. So right (laughs) at the beginning of the second term?
1: January of 2012. Okay. So actually not even, so it was the beginning um, because the second term began in January of 2013. Mm. So it was the beginning of the campaign season which actually when I was driving into Harrisburg I was like, I've been here before <laughs> because President Obama came here in 2012 and That's he went funny. to the market
2: across the street. That's, do you find that in a lot of cities where you just like walk running around like into a new city and you're like, hang on, no, I've been here.
1: Yeah, and it's always something, it's like a market or something where you're like, I think I had a cookie
2: from there once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting
2: way to travel the country. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so back to the job. So you're trying to disappear, you're standing in corners, you're sharing snacks with the press, and you're traveling a ton. Um is that a weird way to live?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's so glamorous for a hot second. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's hour 9 on the plane and you're like I still haven't fallen asleep and now I have 3 hours until we land and we hit the ground running. Mm. And what do I do? And also that's super weird cuz my boss is across from me st- Sleeping with his mouth open, it's super awkward. So You get
2: to watch Obama sleep all the time. No, that's like my boss's oh, boss's boss's boss. Bosses, 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 bosses. Yeah, okay, there okay. are a lot of bosses. Wasn't sure how we're referring to a so yeah. Barack in this no. context. <laughs> okay, so your boss who's not yeah. Obama. So I always with his think about open. one
1: time in Malaysia we. We're there, and this woman who was from the embassy was like, "I've been here for two years, like do you mind if I sit in your seat so I can kind of give you a whirlwind tour as we're driving yeah and I was like, "Yeah, you know sure, go ahead, and it was like the third country, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna go take a nap in the back yeah. and she has a great time, and then by day two, she's like, "This is not as glamorous as I <laughs> thought it would be. You can have your seat back right because so much of keeping up with the president is actually um hurry up and wait as we call it which Mm. so it's just like you're rushing you're sprinting you're having a heart attack because you're worried you're not going to get into the pool spray in time which is when there's a photo op between two leaders and then you get shoved down to the room and then you're just holding in a really claustrophobic inducing hallway for like three hours having no idea when you're going to get to leave yeah yeah huh It takes, I think I write in the book that it takes a lot of people to make one man look good. Right, right. Well, and that's so interesting. And you mentioned when you first
2: started, you didn't know what you were really doing. It was a very new kind of experience for you. You were doing things wrong. Are there like, what what, what was the hardest part when you first started?
1: This sounds so silly, but I think the hardest part was figuring out what to wear. Uh Because I had been a high school English teacher, so you can really wear whatever you want. And then going from that to the White House, where everyone is very serious. But then the cool thing about the Obama administration was that a lot of the women actually wore bright colors. So it was a tricky thing to navigate because there was a hierarchy that I write about in the book, where yeah. I was like, "Oh, this is not as straightforward as I thought." <laughs> Had to play a blazer or two. Yeah. Uh, so many blazers. Right. I felt blazers became like the ultimate band aid for everything. Where I was like, "Well, if I put a blazer on it, that's okay." Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, blazers are great. Um, okay, so. I think what a lot of people are going to be interested in, and what I was interested going into this, is you know we often do not see the president in this context. We don't see him as a human man because he has a lot of power and he's an important person, and often that kind of goes by the wayside. But you saw you met a human man. Um, was that? First off, before you met him, were you scared? Were you like nervous? I was so nervous. Yeah. When I,
1: so I get this job, I'm very excited. Yeah. I'm walking to the White House the first day and I just stop dead in my tracks. I'm like, oh, what if he's just one more politician and he's not nice up close? Or mm-hmm. he's, you know, what if he just seems polished and he's not? And within like 10 seconds of being in the same room, I'm like, oh, this is exactly the guy I thought he was. Yeah. And then actually, over the course of five years, he just became more of that person. It's sort of like, I think in 2016, Michelle Obama said on the campaign trail, the presidency doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. And that was so true watching Barack Obama over the course of those five years, where I was like, he's actually just funnier and kinder and more generous than he comes across on camera. Interesting. You
2: had uh, sort of a really fun anecdote. I think I don't know if it was it wasn't the first time you'd met him, but it it was a gym related situation.
1: No, that was the first time. That that was the first time. So that was I mean, again, I'm this professional creeper. So I was in the room with him a lot, but he never I think in the beginning he's around so many people all the time. He wasn't sure if I was part of press or what my job was. And the reason why he and I ended up having this funny little friendship is because we both love to work out in the morning. And a big part of that was it gave us both a false sense of control over our lives on the road because once we got going into the schedule, it was like even he was not in control of his life. We had so much to do and so little time on the road. And so in the morning, I'd wake up, I'd go to the treadmill in the hotel gym And one time in Colorado in 2012, I'm running and I'm trying to show off because David Pluff is behind me and my boyfriend thinks that he's really cool. So I think he's really cool. And then it's funny, like the German shepherds, these dogs that can sniff bombs come around. And I'm like, okay, he might come in soon. And then they put a sign on the treadmill next to mine that says treadmill broken, which I'm like, that is really good intel. Because no one was even on the treadmill. And they just know that it's broken. <laughs> and like, that's what happens when you're like, you have no, I had no idea. I was like, Secret Service, they're just like magicians, yeah. but like really built. <laughs> and then this guy gets on, who I assume is Secret Service, but on the broken treadmill. So I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's trying to fix it. And just then this guy goes, I thought you'd be faster than that. And I look over and it's actually not a Secret Service agent. It's the president trash talking me at <laughs> 7 a.m. <laughs> And I wish I could say like, yeah, and then I said something really clever, but I was a normal person, and I just forgot my own name, had no idea what to do, just sort of stared at him, gawked, and he's waiting for me to say something cool, Yeah. and I just dropped the ball (laughs) and sprint from the room. And then it's only in the elevator, for those of you who have been in a gym, that I realize I didn't even wipe down my machine. And so I didn't even have the common decency to wipe down my machine because I was so freaked out. So I was like, now he just thinks I'm disgusting. (laughs) That was the first time we talked.
2: And so then, uh, that's great. That's a beautiful start to a relationship. I love it. Um, uh, So then going forward, I mean, did you get to interact with him a lot? Like how much would you say you actually got to talk to the man?
1: Not that much because my job was to be really quiet, but what was fun is that he and I, because we were constantly seeing each other in the gym, and he realized I didn't care about seeing him, a lot of people would come into these hotel gyms and try to sneak a selfie. There was one guy who actually ran so fast trying to impress him that he wiped out. Oh, my God. Which definitely made everyone oh. notice. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I don't think it was the reaction he was going for because POTUS just went, you okay, man? <laughs> which is like super embarrassing. <laughs> Plus, Secret Service was like, he's not even that fast. <laughs> um, but... No, so then over the course of five years, we would see each other, and it was almost like that gym rat's head nod. I was mm. like, "Hey, hey," which is actually even cooler. Very casual, yeah, yeah, because he felt like he did. He just knew we were part of the same team. And then I think my favorite thing was after five years. It took me five years, but after five years on the treadmill, he went like this which doesn't mean anything to anyone, except I had been his stalker for five years, so I knew he only did that with his daughters. So I was like, twinkle (laughs) fingers! (laughs) He basically adopted you. That's what it was. He's your dad now. Um,
2: (laughs) That's fun. Um, Okay, so you're flying around. You're stalking Obama. You are... Getting paid for it. Getting paid to stalk Obama um, and travel a lot. Now, I have to ask you, so you're with sort of uh, the same people all the time
1: all the time all the time oh
2: my god Uh, I guess first off did you get sick of each other
1: yeah so growing up I have a young a younger sister and an older brother and we would sit in a Volvo, like in the back, just all strapped next to each other. My sister was in a car seat, it was just the worst. And that was basically, even though Air Force One was this great plane, it kind of felt like that by the end. We were yeah. just like, can you just give me a little room? Yeah. yeah.
2: So you, I think, were a little bit of an outlier in that you were a teacher and didn't even intend when you applied for this job to work at the White House. Um, but is there a certain sort of person who becomes a staffer for the president?
1: I think so. I think a lot of people go to Washington. I thought so much of uh, my friends from college who were poli-sci majors yeah. who worked their way up. And they worked for a senator or a congressman and, or joined the Obama campaign early and got to work in the White House right from the get-go. So it was definitely someone who was idealistic. Especially, I think, the Obama administration. I don't want to speak for any administration. But the people who were in the Obama administration that became my good friends were these young idealists who came to Washington to change things and saw that as, you know, I'm more of like a hands-on, like, I'm going to change things by being a teacher. And they were like, we're going to change things through policy. But yeah, it was a, it was a different person. It was someone who didn't loathe the idea of being in a suit. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Okay. And so, and did you loathe The idea of being in a suit. Indeed. You had to. Yeah. (laughs) I like your sneakers. That's good. Um, So then I I think this is interesting because this is a job where you don't necessarily have any power yourself being, you know, a staffer to the president in some capacity. But you're in proximity to power all the time. You work for extremely powerful people. Um, Is that does that? do something to a person? Is that a, a strange environment to be in and to exist in all the time?
1: Yeah, this is why we love Lord of the Rings because half of the people I worked with became golems and half of them were like Frodo's and Sam's where <laughs> they were just trying their hardest to not let the power get to them. Sure. And it's really dangerous, it's difficult because you're around this one of the most powerful people in the world. And people are really nice to you and you're not quite sure why they're nice to you, but it's probably so you'll give them a White House tour, but you're not quite sure. So, yeah, there's a divide of people where it's like you can either keep your cool and realize there's more to life than working at the White House. And really the only reason why anyone gets to work at the White House is because they got really lucky. You might work hard, but you also have to have an incredible amount of luck to get to work at the White House.
2: And was there um, an interesting, like, internal politics that went along with a
1: job like that? I think so, but I was a stenographer. Right. So I was, like, this weird lone wolf, and everyone, Pete Susie used to be like, get the Craigslister off the plane whenever <laughs> I was having, like, too much fun. Because I was just a weird animal to have on there where yeah. I wasn't interested in climbing the the power hierarchy. Interesting, interesting. And so then uh, when you find these people who, as you say,
2: become Frodo's or Gollum's or whatever, um, does it, like, actually change the person? Like, do you, like, like sort of you know, say, oh, wow, like, John's getting way too into this, like,
1: yeah. do you, yeah? Well, yeah. especially the, the. so there's like 15 traveling staff, so it really does become your family. And so yeah. if anyone was sort of like, like one time a bunch of us went to a concert and they were like, oh, we have to park so far away. And it was like, right, we're not with POTUS. Like, who do you think you are, bro? <laughs> and so it was actually good. There were always enough of us that we could knock each other down a yeah. few pegs when necessary.
2: And this was something, and I think I told you, this line had stuck out to me. You know, Speaking of power and how powerful people are treated, um, you had said uh, somebody had, you know, complimented the president's suit at one point and you kind of made the point that like essentially Obama gets fed, you know, emotionally as the president and he doesn't get talked to and he doesn't get treated like he's a person. Um, is that I mean, that's an, that's an interesting observation. And like, how did you kind of come to that conclusion?
1: Oh, because everyone's so nice to him. People are like, oh, did you meet any mean celebrities? I'm like, no, everyone's on their best behavior because they're around the president. Mm -hmm. That being said, what was so cool about him is that he wasn't interested in playing those political games, and so that's why he loves babies as much as he does. Like You can watch those montage videos of just him seeing all these babies, and he means it because he's so happy because he's like, you walk into a room with a bunch of kids, they do not care that you're president. They care if you get down and see them on their level, if you make a funny face, great. He also loves hanging out with his high school friends because they give him a ton of guff and they totally treat him like a person. It was really only within DC and people who had an agenda where he was, he had to be wary of them. Yeah. Interesting.
2: Did you find that there's a a cult of personality around this person? I I mean, I feel like whenever anybody talks about Obama, it's either they loved him or they hated him. And Mm -hmm. if people who love him really, really loved him. And I think it's that's an interesting way to treat a politician. Is that, was that like ever something that made you uncomfortable or you kind of stopped to kind of think about?
1: No, it was really nice. I thought it was really cool at the time. It's cool now to yeah. have someone where it's like you can go to them and feel inspired and aspire to do what they did. I, mm-hmm. think it's, I think there are worse things in the world than really loving someone who was working that hard on behalf of the American people for eight years. And he was, I'm assuming, working very hard. He was working so hard. Like, we were all just trying to keep up with him. He refused to, when we would travel to Asia, he refused to fly during the day because he didn't want to give up a day of work. So then Mm -hmm. we would have to fly overnight and land, and then it would be the morning over there, and we'd hit the ground running for a 14-hour day. And it was just like, what are you trying to do to us? <laughs> and it, But then at the same time, it's like, if he's getting up early to then run on a treadmill, what are the rest of us doing? <laughs> so we were all just trying to keep up with him. I don't know how he kept the pace he did, but yeah. he did. Interesting.
2: And now, I, we, I had mentioned this to you before, but um, I was looking, at, you know, kind of looking into how to research for this talk, and there have been a lot of memoirs written about people working in the Obama administration. Uh, numbers vary, but it's like a dozen or maybe two dozen. Um, when you kind of sat down and you thought, like, I should write a book, what were you, I mean, a lot of these are already out, you're sort of like throwing your hat into a, into a crowded ring almost. What did you want to add? Like, what was, what was the perspective that you wanted to make known?
1: So, I've been writing since I was like seven, Mm -hmm. and then I was an English major, and then I was a high school English teacher, only because I didn't think normal people could become writers, and that was second best to me, if I can't write full time, I want to talk about writing full time, and especially with kids, so that was really fun, and I was writing the whole time I was teaching about, working at a boarding school is like pretty bizarre too, it's different than working at the White House, but there are a bunch of stories there. And so then when I got to the White House, it was no different. I just kind of continued to write stories and keep notes. And the difference was that all of a sudden I was getting emails from my parents being like, so what did you eat on Air Force One today? <laughs> and what's it smell like? And where are you? Yeah. And so I wanted to keep those notes and the stories. Everyone else who's in the Oval Office is working really hard. Everyone else who's in the Roosevelt Room is working really hard. And I had this straightforward job where as soon as my recorders were running I got to sit and listen and so it almost felt like my responsibility to keep notes for myself just so that it's like this day is going to end I'm not always going to work here and this is crazy lucky that I get to sit in this room. Yeah. And so I was writing the whole time. So it's not like I sat down to write a book and had to start from scratch. It was actually when I left the White House, the book was 90% done because it was all just patchworked. Yeah. And when I, what I initially thought was that I was going to write a book of essays. And it would be like, this is an essay about David Pluff And this is an essay about Jen Paul Mary. And instead, what happened was uh, David Remnick at The New Yorker was like, where are you? Like, Where are you in this story? Because you got your job on Craigslist and you're this young, wacky, young woman who's a stenographer, who's paid not to speak, and yet you're like the most outspoken person when we travel, where is your story in this? And so then I was just more weaving in Mm -hmm. my uh, my anecdotes in there. Your
2: anecdotes, yeah, and if anybody has read it or wants to read it, it really, like you, put your life into it that was sort of uh, that's the center of the book I think is you trying to navigate this entire weird thing yeah
1: so really when I sat down to figure out okay how much of myself do I want to put in I was kind of like I think I have to go whole hog because I was thinking about my younger sister and I was thinking about all of the students, all of my former students, especially the young women who are going to be entering the workforce, and I was like, well, I think it's really important for people to realize that in their first and second and third jobs, you're having to navigate so much, and it's not just professionally, which is a lot, but also socially and romantically, and it gets very confusing, especially if your job requires you to travel a lot. And so I just wanted to include all of that, for better or for worse. Are people okay with, like,
2: people who ended up in the book, like, that all ended up being all right?
1: So far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah.
2: Good. Um, uh, The book does not end with you working for Obama. The book actually ends with you working briefly for Donald Trump. so, and you didn't stay in the Trump administration super long, but what was that turnover? Well, first off, what was the election like? And then what was the turnover like? So
1: we all thought Hillary was going to win. My, a bunch of my friends had actually left the Obama White House to work on the Hillary campaign. So I was like, this will be so fun. It'll be a friend reunion in January. All of my friends will come back. And so I was interested in staying to see what that would be like. And then when Donald Trump won, all of a sudden I was like, oh, no, I don't want to stay for this And my friend was like, you should stay because you're the only one of us who's not politically appointed. You're the only one who can stay and kind of be a witness. Um, And so I did. And it was as stark as you could get. It was sort of like going from, if you want to compare television shows, it went from The West Wing to... Veep meets Game of Thrones. <laughs> You're just like, why is there so much yelling in here? <laughs> why is the you know parking lot full of Maseratis all of a sudden? It was a crazy difference, and just like the you know hearing Donald Trump. Do you remember when uh, um, Kellyanne ended up sponsoring or advocating for Ivanka's shoes from the briefing room? So I just happened to be walking through like by the outer oval. And I heard Donald Trump just screaming at Kellyanne. And I was like, wow, five years, I'd never heard Barack Obama yell. And here I am. Like, Never heard him yell. Never raised his voice. Wow. No. And so this was just like early on. It was like, okay, this is going to be a different administration. And then as far as my role went, um, I actually wrote an op-ed about it in the New York Times last week, which is all about uh, this administration didn't really respect our role and didn't necessarily want us in the room a lot of the time. It didn't include us in the daily guidance Uh, which is also part of why I left, which is like, you're not utilizing us. You're doing all sorts of shady things and making sure there's no record of it. Why am I here?
2: So just to be clear, so under Obama, you were there almost all the time. I was there
1: whenever a member of the press was in the room. Okay. And so right off the bat, was it different with Trump? Yeah, I was in, in the room when he had his first televised interview. We were watching television. We were like, oh, oh, he had an interview, we didn't know about that, which is crazy because with the Obama administration and all the administrations previous to that, my boss started under Reagan, we got the guidance the day before. So we always knew when he was doing anything with the press because it really is beneficial to the press and the president and the press office and it's required of the presidential archive. Mm. So there's a lot of people who are you know, relying on that information and also it's to make sure that the president isn't misquoted. Yeah.
2: And now, and we just have like two minutes left. But uh, I do want to just get to finally. You, you did leave at one point um, after two months, I believe. Two months. And why? What made you leave? I mean, you because you wanted to sort yeah. of witness this new thing, right? Right.
1: So the silver lining of Trump becoming president in November was it was my incentive to leave the White House, and I think I would sort of gotten complacent. I suppose, where it was like, oh, I'll stay. Even though I didn't love typing other people's words, I was much more interested in writing my own. It was such a crazy opportunity. And so then when he won, I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it very long. Even on Inauguration Day, that speech he gave, the language was so divisive and almost like this call to arms, and I had never typed anything like that. And so that was just sort of terrifying as a citizen of this country, where I was like, where are we going? And I can't type up transcripts like this because it just made my stomach hurt so much. And so then... I was like, it's now or never. Like, If Trump can win the election, I can try to write a book, because I had just been so scared for so long. I had never showed anyone my writing except my parents and my boyfriend and you know, a few chosen staffers on their last day at the White House. <laughs> so that was my reasoning for leaving, and then it was really cool. Um, once he won, I started to take the writing seriously, and then I was actually in the middle of typing a Sean Spicer briefing, and I got a call and said, you have a deal. You can walk out now. You've typed your last briefing. Hmm. Yeah. And that was Two that. Cinderella stories. <laughs> getting the job at the White House through Craigslist and then getting a book deal so I can leave the White House.
2: And, <laughs> and I think we're just about to turn it over to questions, yeah. but I want to ask. So you are writing a second book.
1: I'm writing a second book. It's not going to be about the White House. It'll be fiction, uh-huh. and it won't be about my personal life. So I'm really excited. <laughs> awesome.
2: Well, hey, back to Roy Stein. And we were going to, uh, I think I'm going to turn it over to Alex over there, and we're going to do a Q&A.
0: We're going to toss it over to you guys for audience Q&A. So um, I'm going to run around with the mic. I haven't had my exercise today. So just raise your hand, and I'll run over to you. Yes. Um, so I think you must be very modest, because I can't imagine you really just luck out via Craigslist and a job at the White House. So I was just wondering, what you must have something on your resume that really helped you get such an important job.
1: Oh, that's so kind and generous. No, I was super... So I had been working in D.C. for a couple of months trying to get all of these jobs, barely making rent. And so I think when this job popped up on Craigslist, at the time I was trying to apply to 10 jobs a day, which if you've ever been unemployed is just... Trying to get a job is a full-time job in itself. And so it was exhausting. And then they ask you to write these cover letters and no one reads cover letters. And so that's so frustrating. And so I had been interviewing for jobs and not getting them. And so when this job came up, I was actually really obnoxious. And they were like, hey, thanks for your resume, but you forgot to attach a cover letter. And I was like, I think my resume speaks for itself. I was 24 <laughs> years old, by the way. So no, I think the only thing I had going for me was that I had taught part time at Sidwell Friends, which is where the Obama girls attended. So that's great, because it shows I have an FBI clearance, <laughs> background clearance, and that I can you know, speak properly and write Okay. But no, uh, thank you. No. Okay. So I've got another
0: one. So you mentioned, you made it sound like all your job was to turn on the recorder. But then you mentioned that you had to type up
1: what was recorded. Mm-hmm. So so you, you had to listen to everything, but then type it up. Yes. Verbatim. Yes. So we had the recorders, we'd go in and we'd type it, and we were never typing real time. We'd go up into our office, there were five of us, and we'd sort of do a round robin. So say he did an hour long interview, I'd be like, all right, I'll type the first 10 minutes, you type the second 10 minutes. Um, and then we'd always make sure that at least two sets of eyes got on each transcript. So if I recorded it, I might not even type any of it, or I might record it and then only proofread it to the audio. But we always had, we always made sure that we were hearing everything at least two times by two different people to make sure it was completely accurate and uh, oh sorry and just in case anyone's interested uh for transcribing we would we had a foot pedal because i'm not a i wasn't especially fast typist i hadn't gone to school for it and the foot pedal was just you know the bread and butter of, of our job so it allowed us to i'd like do it unintentionally now rewind and fast forward without using a mouse so it allowed us to really go quickly especially you know joe biden could be a bit of a marble mouth so it was really helpful with him i was like what did you just say joe what was that
0: Question in the third row?
1: Yes. um, Have you experienced any negative uh, blowback like from the half the country that won't buy the book? Oh, sure. Right now, you're a target, obviously. Yeah. What's that been like? Oh, it's really scary. You know, it's not nice. Um, It's trolls. And so, it was actually, I just did a panel, and this woman who's on CNN, Alison Camerata, was also on the panel. She wrote a novel, and she got a ton of trolls for it, about the news. Um, And so it was nice to talk to her and she was like, it's just sort of part of it. But yeah, it's not great. It's very scary. There's so much hatred and vitriol. It's quite sad, but I wouldn't trade it for getting to write this book, so. Next question, yes.
0: So you were officially on duty when the press was there, which means what was said was public but you were around all of the time. So what kind of guidance did you get about what you could say to people about what was happening, what you really needed to not
1: talk about what was happening? Well, that was the beauty of my job and getting to write this book the way I wanted to write it. Most people who write memoirs are really important, and I was notably not important. And so I actually didn't even have clearance, um, which was also interesting. So I never saw a single page of a classified document which made writing the book extremely easy because I wasn't having to sift through, okay, what can I say and what can I not say? And the same thing with when I was there, I was never having to worry about with press, what can I say, what can I not say? The only thing that happened was sometimes, you know, President Obama would meet with a little kid from a make, from Make-A-Wish Foundation backstage and he never wanted to make that stuff public, so the press wouldn't know that and I wouldn't say anything. But like, that's as bad as it got where it was like, oh, you don't know about this really nice thing that's happening backstage.
0: So those are the things that are classified, but you know, like, in your transition, um, clearly you have less respect for Donald Trump than Barack Obama. So if it had been flipped and you had had to work for Donald Trump for the years, I think you'd be inclined to your friends say, you know, this guy was doing such and such, he was a jerk, you know, while he was the president. Um, So were you given any guidance of don't share personal things about what's going on or did it just never come up because you didn't have anything negative that you want I didn't
1: have anything negative yeah I mean that's yeah especially not nothing classified and also nothing negative I mean that guy is just squeaky clean he's crazy the worst thing he did was sometimes he'd go golfing on a weekend (laughs) there's been a lot of talk this week about what happened in Helsinki earlier in the week and talk about bringing that stenographer the only person in the room interpreter uh, interpreter Mm in the room, you know, who heard what happened and, and finding out that way. Do you have an opinion on that as someone who's sort of been in a similar position? Uh, objectively, I mean, part partisan wise, most of us right. in this room probably have an opinion. But objectively, as someone who has been in that position, yeah. what do you think about that? Objectively, I feel so sorry for that interpreter, because as someone who everyone's like, oh, Beck has the audio, it's like, I have the audio, but my stress when I go into the Oval Office is just like, did I put fresh recorder? Did I put fresh batteries in this? Is this going to like die any second? Am I about to sneeze and then I'm going to mess up my own audio? All of that times a million is what is the burden on an interpreter's shoulders, especially in that setting. I can't even imagine how much pressure she was under to make sure she was interpreting everything just right. I would never be in the room in that situation, but I also know that her job in that moment is to just interpret. Like she's not trying to think about the implications. She's not a senior advisor. Barack Obama would have, a mo- would have um, private meetings, but he would always have senior advisors in the room. And so it's really just sad that it's come down to this interpreter. And also as someone who, I was often in the Oval Office and we would have heads of state come in. The interpreter would be sitting right below me. I would kind of be hovering over their shoulder with my microphone. And I would look at their notes and it's just chicken scratch because it's just a word here or a word here that they need to think about twice or it's like a trigger word where they're like, okay, and then I'm going to go into that. Um, but their turnaround is insane. And as someone who often came out of the Oval Office and someone would be like, hey, what was that third question he asked? And I was like, I have, I have no idea. I was worried about the batteries. And luckily I had an audio recording of it so I could be like, let me, I'll tell you in 10 minutes when I hear it. But they don't have that. They don't have an audio recording. So they're left to their own interpretation, which is difficult. Question over here. So if From the Corner of the Oval becomes a movie, who would you want to play you and why? I think it'd be really fun to post it as an innocuous Craigslist post <laughs> and just see what happens and who comes out for like a role. And I want it to be like extra on a movie set, day's work, two days at most. And then it's like, just kidding, you get to star in a movie now.
0: <laughs> Any other questions on the main floor here? About the balcony? Anyone on the balcony?
1: This balcony is so cool. This is my first time here. It's a beautiful space. You guys are so lucky.
0: Can you uh, quickly just tell the the Bill O'Reilly story?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we had to, stenographers, during the Trump administration, I was there for two months. We did not get to go to the first interview he did. We were told, oh, there's video. And we're like, that's not the same. You know, you can splice video. It's also ABC's video, so they don't have to give it to us. It could be manipulated in some way. We really like to have our own. And also, this is the way it's been done for the last 40 years. Um, so they let us in for the Bill O'Reilly interview, which was nice of them. And so I go in, and Bill O'Reilly's in the corner <laughs> in, the, in the West Wing, uh, grumpy and waiting for the president to come down because the president is late. And he actually doesn't come down. Instead, Ho Picks arrives and says Bill can you come upstairs with me the president would like to talk to you and I'm like that's kind of weird I've never seen that before but okay and Bill O'Reilly then disappears for the better part of an hour and we're all sitting there like I had my recorders ready to go and so then they come back an hour later and then they have this interview and it struck me as so bizarre because I was like you know what, everyone likes to talk to reporters, but this is in the middle of the president's working day and he just took an hour to talk to Bill O'Reilly and it wasn't scheduled. And especially because it was prior to the interview, it just felt like there was some sort of collusion or it was like, what are you going to ask me? Tell me the hard questions, which as someone, I have never done television before, and I just had to do some TV things the last few days. And I would love to know the questions ahead of time, but they don't tell me. So I'm like, Donald Trump, come on. Like, if if that's what you find challenging in this job, we are in for some big trouble, which here we are.
0: We have time for one final question. Yes. Interaction? Did you have any interaction with Michelle and the girls and the family?
1: Yeah, so there are five stenographers. So I was one of the presidents, but there is one just for the first lady. And so I only did first lady events when my colleague was sick. So I did go on one trip with her, and she's just so cool. And she's so, so I taught high school English. And I went to a school with her, and she was so good with these teenagers that my mind was just totally blown. Like, it was just, she, got, she was on their level in no time. She was making them laugh. They were listening the way teenagers never listen. And it was such a testament to who she is. And then I would go on their family vacations, <laughs> which is really nice but terrifying because, you know, it's like you're on call. 24/7, and all you want is for these poor people to get to actually have a vacation. And sometimes it happened, and sometimes news broke, and it was really challenging for everyone. Um, but the girls would be there, the dogs would be there. It was very funny on Martha's Vineyard. Um, the dogs would take the helicopter. We would all take helicopters, and they had to have uh, headphones because they got so nervous about the sounds. And you're like, oh, dogs are just dogs. Um, and the girls were great. The girls were just like. So down to earth, so goofy, so funny. They'd always walk by and be like, cute shirt, and then just keep going. They're just like kind of bopping around. It's a really They're just such a family. It's really cool. There was one time in the Oval that um, he was doing an interview with the AARP in 2012. And all of a sudden, the door kind of squeaked open. And we were like, who interrupts? It was so weird. And all of a sudden, the president kind of looks around to be like, who's interrupting the interview? And first comes Pete Souza, which is weird because he had already taken a few photographs, but he was back, so I was like, what is going on? This is the ARP, this is not especially exciting. And all of a sudden, Malia and Sasha poked their heads in and they had just gotten back from camp and they did not want to wait to say hi to their dad and he just jumped out of his seat, he was like, I'm so sorry, but I haven't seen them. I'm sorry. I'll do it, I'll finish the interview, but can I just say hi to them really fast? And it was just like such a family moment, and all of a sudden the dogs came in and Michelle came in. It was like and we were all like, Have your moment, none of us are looking, (laughs) but all of us are crying. (laughs) It's so nice.
0: Can we give a huge round of applause for Beck and Katie?